What's up, Active Lifers? Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch. I'm your host. Today's guest is Franziska Gonder. You can call her Franzi. It's easier to call her Franzi, she says. She's a transformational and somatic coach who helps leaders start to think about what they're thinking about. She has a space that she allows people to step into where they can be their most vulnerable selves and be celebrated for it so that decisions can come from observing our own thoughts challenging the truth and our beliefs so that we can start to take the steps that previously we were unaware were available to us. I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. Franzi and I step into some of my beliefs, what they've led to, how I've needed to change, and she actually takes me on a mini coaching journey while we're on the call. Let's get you to the show. Before we get you to the interview, remember this podcast is brought to you by the Active Life Seminar. We used to travel around the country and people would pay up to $1,500 to fly somewhere, stay in a hotel, buy food, get a rental car, and miss work to take our two-day seminar to learn how to better assess their clients and their members in their gym so they can identify the movement impairments that are going to hold them back, cause them aches, cause them pains, cause them injuries before it happens. The movement assessments that we teach to coaches, the theory and the science behind them, leads gym owners who have clients who are joining their gym from other gyms just like it. So if you own a CrossFit gym, a member joins your CrossFit gym and they say they've been doing it for the last two or three years. You put them through our movement screen and what you're going to hear from them is nobody has ever been that thorough with me before. And they love it. So this podcast is brought to you by the Active Life Seminar. You can find it on our website and when you go there, all you got to do is enroll in the next seminar. You can do it from home, do it from the gym, no hazmat suit, no mask, no touching weird people you never met before. This is your first step to finally turning your passion for fitness into a meaningful and fulfilling career. And we believe that fulfilling means you have the ability to help all of the clients who you want to help while earning the financial and time freedom to live the life that you want outside of the gym. That's it. Hope to see you at the seminar soon. Franzi Gonder, welcome to the Active Life Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's I'm my pleasure. Yeah, I've been, I've been excited about this one since um, Ken, Andrew Go mentioned mm-hmm. that I should I should speak to you about being on the show. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I'm, I'm most interested in digging into with you is just this this strategy and the tactical application of belief breaking because it's our beliefs mm-hmm. have a very strong grip on the decisions that we make, the actions that we take, the people who we become, the people we surround, all all of the things. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to help you dig into it. So I would love to start the podcast by discussing with you um, a belief that you forced me to challenge in a simple email reply that you wrote that was probably a nothing burger to you and was a wow for me. Mm -hmm. You know, when I reached out to you about uh, doing a pre-interview about coming on the show, you told me you'd be happy to come on the show and to do the pre-interview, but that the following two weeks were not going to work because you would be hiking the mountains of Italy with your family and drinking all of the wine. Now, the reason that that was a wow for me is I have three kids. I believe you have two or you have three as well. I have three boys. Yeah. Right. And they're of similar age, if I'm not mistaken. How, how old are your boys? My boys are uh, just two from like last week 
three and six. Right. So I'm two, four and six. So very <laughs> similar in age. Yeah. And the thought of hiking the mountains of Italy with my two, four and six year olds mm-hmm. and then giving myself the space to drink red wine, mm-hmm. knowing that they're still there with me mm-hmm. was foreign to me and mm-hmm. inspiring. It was like, oh, well, that's something to, to plan. So I'd love mm-hmm. to hear how you do that. Hmm. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to dig into that. Um, a few years ago, when my husband and I had our first son, um, we went on a vacation, our first vacation as a family, and we we even brought my parents along because we were like, you know, we don't know how challenging it's going to get. Um, and you know, with all the expectation of relaxing and resting and you know have enjoying the good life and we went to Austria and none of those things happened right we didn't relax uh it wasn't particularly calm or quiet or peaceful um but we did drink red wine um so and afterwards I said to my husband it was like this concept doesn't work anymore like this whole like vacation is such a relaxing thing because we're family now and I kind of left it at that for, for a little while until my husband got back to me in a few weeks later, kind of randomly and said, you know what? I think we need to reframe family vacations as adventures um, because then we're like all in the same spirit and we're all carrying the same energy. And we're basically adjusting to our kids energy rather than our kids should be adjusting to ours because they're kids and that's not what they're supposed to do. Um, and just sitting in that, and I, was, I looked at him and I was like, that is so liberating. Yes, like I love adventure. We all do, um, you know, most of us. And, uh, and so that's when we started to go on road trips, like 16, 18 hour road trips. And um, yeah, it, it's frustrating at times and it's you know, very loud at times, but it's like bringing the adventure spirit back up always sort of like helps us to make sure we're creating memories with our children. And that's pretty much, I think, what I would say to them. Well, what's the difference between a vacation and an adventure? Um, I think it's it's just like the the traditional expectation that we have around vacation. It's this sort of like relaxing sort of like, um, you know, I have to, I have to come back from vacation and be all rejuvenated and well rested and have slept for at least 10 hours every night. And, you know, those kind of things. Um, so that I, when I get back to work, you know, I feel a lot more productive, present, uh, just not as jaded maybe even. And so you had that belief prior to your first vacation with the kids. I, I did not. Uh, I think it's because I, um, sort of like my own boss for kind of always, always have been. And so uh, I never really created life around me where I felt like I had to go on vacation from my work. But the idea of going on vacation to do all the things that are particularly good for me was there. Um, and that doesn't really work with kids anymore. I'm sure you, you're very aware of that too. Yeah, one of the things I've talked to my wife about is that the perfect vacation for me mm. is 
First half, trip, adventure. Mm-hmm. Second half, vacation, relax. And maybe this doesn't need to be a second half. It's it's the end cap, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I selfishly would like to take my kids. I enjoy my kids. I like them. Like I genuinely am happy <laughs> that they are alive. I... I think that I would love for you to dig into more of the, in the moment, the mental shift that happens when you're in the RV, for example, you're in the car, it's an 18 hour road trip and the kids are whining. I want to watch this. I want to, I want a snack. I need to go to the bathroom. I, you know, I don't want to do that because kids are going to do that. It doesn't matter how well you parent. Kids are going to do that. I think. Mm-hmm. So for me, that immediately goes to deep breath, allow it to pass. Mm-hmm. And then if it doesn't pass, it goes to, okay, I lack the skills to deal with this, which mm-hmm. is why I haven't done it. You know, my wife and I went on a six hour road trip with the kids a few years ago and it was not enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And we're about to do it again. And I'm, mm-hmm. look, I'm looking for a way to shift the way that I think. Mm-hmm. This is a multi-layered answer. Um, So the first thing that, um, that seems a little bit more obvious than others maybe is it's always a choice. It's a choice for me to look at my kids as who they're allowed there, you know, um, everybody has to go to the bathroom, all that kind of stuff. Like I can perceive that as annoying or I can perceive that as a human need that those tiny humans have. Um, and they rely on me, um, if to make sure that I navigate the situation very, very well for them. Right. So it's a choice for me to sort of like perceive it as stress or breathe into that, soften my shoulders, unclench my jaw and be like, okay, he has to go to the bathroom. It is what it is, you know, um, and that is much more a habit than it is anything else because it's it doesn't come naturally to us necessarily, and you have to do it over and over and over again until you see the benefits for yourself too. Oh, I don't need to be stressed about that. Oh, I don't need to make it a conditioned tendency tendency of mine to like freak out everybody. You know, every time uh, someone has to go to the bathroom, even though we just went forty minutes ago. Um, I don't need to react to that. Oh, that feels very liberating for me too, right? Um, It basically subtracts a stress factor in my life. Um, And my body probably is very happy about that too because, you know, we don't need the cortisol. (laughs) So um, that's, I think that's the first layer. And then the second layer that might go a little bit deeper into how your kids are going to grow up is what's the intergenerational ambience that you're creating by being the stressed parent? What are your kids going to do when they have kids? Are they going to sort of like, are they wired the same way? And like, you know, have a lot of like stress responses that are not good for them, not good for their kids. What is it? What is the kind of like notion that you want to create around what it means to um, have a meaningful experience and navigating tricky, stressful, ambivalent situations as a, as a team. Well, so um, I'll share with you what I've done in micro doses. And I, I'm, I'm curious to your, to your thoughts, because it's something that I've been able to apply across not only uh, 
familial situations, but also business situations and, and personal achievement situations. It's mm-hmm. shifting my expectation. So, for example, when I drive for talks I'm going to give, mm-hmm. if it's a four-hour trip, I'm, I'm not stopping. The plan mm-hmm. is not to stop unless I absolutely need to go to the bathroom. So I prep everything. I mm-hmm. get in the car. I plot my trip. And I go. And I expect it to take four hours. When I'm in the car with the kids, I don't allow myself to have that same expectation because I know, okay, a six-hour trip could be a 10-hour trip. Mm-hmm. And so when I shift my expectation to we're leaving at 8 in the morning and we're going to get there at noon or we're going to get there at 2, to we're leaving at 8 in the morning and we're going to get there by 8 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And who cares what happens on the way? Because what's the difference? Where, where, what is the deadline? Uh, yeah, that, where do we have to be at that point? Right. Nowhere. Right. That, that allows me to, to have a little bit less stress about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, to me, that just comes down to expectation setting. Is that something that you build into your work with yourself, with your clients, or is it something that's totally different from that? It's a good question. Um, I think expectation is, is, is a, is almost like a very obvious um, first step when you're trying to detach yourself from something that you're accustomed to. Um, and the second step would be to give yourself the, uh, liberating, sorry, the liberating um, moment of having a choice. So I feel like, you know, living in, living in expectation um, and then dropping the expectation is a first step of realizing how powerful it is to have a choice around something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think for, for, for someone who's, um, who has a hard time letting go, um, and, um, is some, for someone who is experiencing control in his life a lot because he or she has to, you know, CEO, a founder, something, uh, something along those lines, that's a really good place to start. What are your expectations? Um, what is the control that you're trying to, you know, gain here? Um, and how, how would it look differently if you, if you let it go? I think that's a really good, uh, point that you bring up. You know, I've always been in the position of control mm-hmm. in my businesses, in my income, in what yeah. I'm doing day in and day out. So like sure. I, I wake up, if, if it's on my schedule, it's because I've decided I want that on my schedule, mm-hmm. every single thing. Uh, and then when you start doing things with kids, you're not like you need to be able to submit to the fact that you're not going to have control over everything. Because if you try to have control over everything, you're not going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then good. what else is there that I might be able to take from, from my kids that I could use, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in that, in that moment, like there's sh- sheer joy of just being in the present moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, letting go of the control for two weeks and letting my kids tell me what it is that we're going to do. And, understand that there is a lot of fun in just, you know, jumping in and out of the pool 65 times within 20 minutes, you know, um, like that. I mean, that's, that's, that's like, <laughs> that's a real exercise in, in presence. Right. And 
almost like spirituality almost, but uh, for many of us. Um, but I think we can learn so much from each other. And I think that's where habit breaking or, you know, finding yourself personal renewal starts sort of like, what is it that I can learn from others next to me, left and right, even from my kids. Um, when I'm trying to let go of something, when I'm trying to let go of control. I agree with you. Mm. And what I, I'm glad that you transitioned it there because I want to, I want to be careful that this podcast is not all about being a parent on a road trip. Yes. Um, yes. And, yeah. and I have, when I, when I was getting ready to have my first kid, there's an experience that I had with, uh, with my wife where we were walking and I, I bring this up in almost every talk that I give, because I think it's, mm. I think it's relatable and I think it's really grounding. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was working countless hours, 75, 80, 90 hour work weeks. And my wife was pregnant. I wasn't earning a lot of money at the time by anyone's standards in any country, in any demographic within that country. And as we were walking, my wife says to me, I don't want to be a single mom. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't meaning that she was going to leave me or that we were going to, that we were heading for divorce. What she meant was I need, I want, I want a father figure in this kid's life and you are never home. And the secondary part of that was, and what you're doing isn't working without her having to tell me what you're doing isn't working. Uh, so we, we, we started to change what success looked like. And part of, part of success stopped looking like, achievement and dollar amounts and it started looking like being able to be on the boardwalk in our town going on a walk with my wife and my kids absolutely no later than six o'clock out of the office by five thirty, mm-hmm. and then it becomes well what must be true about my day for me in order to go on that walk at six o'clock mm-hmm. and when i started putting those constraints in everything else started to happen because you start mm-hmm. to cut out all of the things that are tertiary and what you said there was a really valuable way to transition into that, which is the idea of what can I learn from the situation? How can I be present? How can the kids teach me something that can be applied in the other part of my life? Mm-hmm. So do you have any experiences that you can speak to where you having kids taught you something about yourself in your business, in your life? Yeah. Um, well, now we're going deep really fast. <laughs> Listen, when, uh, I, when, when, I, when I was growing up, high school and college, uh, I live in a beach town. We had a rule. Uh, if you put your toes in the water, hmm. any one of us are allowed to just full sprint tackle you into the water. Here we go. So You just did that for me. That's it. So we used to you just, just like, tackle me into the water. That's it. All right. That's it. Let's go. Um, so I come from a similar background. Uh, 70 and 90 hours work week, mm-hmm. like love it, mm-hmm. you know, no, no need to change. And then I got pregnant unexpectedly, um, uh, welcomed and with a lot of love, but it, it was still a surprise. Mm-hmm. So because I also come from a very dysfunctional family background, um, or dis- dysfunctional family, um, I knew very early in my life that when I have kids, um, I need, uh, I need my life, my family life to be harmonious. That's all I knew for myself. And when I became an entrepreneur, um, what I found out for myself is that my family is as much of a startup 
than my startup is. Which came first, by the way? Were you a business person? I, the, the entre- my entrepreneur journey as a as a founder yeah. came first. And then uh, I eventually met my now husband. Okay. And um, so I always, uh, at home, I always phrased it, I love as a startup too. And that concept has guided me through the highest highs and the lowest lows of my life. Like to remind me that iterating is incredibly important. Um, when I'm building my family and, you know, want to bring in the work and make sure that everything gets done and everybody feels taken care of. Um, but what it meant in particular, and this is a very particular moment in my life is when I had my, um, my first and my third son, I had very severe um, postpartum anxiety. And part of the, now I know that the reason of it is ultimately that I hadn't integrated my father's death in 2013 at all. Um, what do you I mean, was really good what, at do you, what do you mean you hadn't integrated it? It means that I hadn't integrated what that loss meant to me on a personal, emotional, and physical level. Like I hadn't basically, the way I always talk to my clients about it is sort of like where, when you want to find out where certain things sit in your body, sort of like where did loss sit in my body? Loss sat like right under my heart for me. And I always, after my father's death and when I had my first son, I always had this sort of like nervous feeling right there. Um, and I never, I just wasn't aware of it, um, really. And when I slipped into the anxiety, what happened is that I learned to work with that nervous feeling, um, under my heart. It taught me that I was someone who fears loss, um, a lot. Um, and all of a sudden I was going, looking back at my life and I was like, oh my gosh, This is exactly what happened all my life. Like I've always been sort of like hunting down connection, making sure I'm, you know, I'm, I'm connected with as many people as possible. Um, And for this, uh, for many reasons, but especially also because my parents got divorced very early and my, they didn't have a relationship at all. And so it was all, it was a very tricky childhood. Um, and so now when I, when I look back on that, I, 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 I know, sorry, I think we have to do this again. Um, this is a lot of background for me. So um, when I look back at this, um, at this moment in my life now, I, what I feel is just, So much, um, work that, um, I didn't know I had to do in the moments of anxiety. Like we, we learn how to cope with anxiety. We learn how to like get rid of anxiety, but we don't learn how to like sit in anxiety and basically be like, how does this anxiety feel like? What does it do to me? Where does it sit? Why does it sit where it sits? Um, how can I move it out, move it into my hands, look at it and be like, um, I'm going to tackle this with you. 
you're part of me. You're there for a reason. Um, and you're there to protect me. Like our body's always in our favor, right? That's what I always say. Uh, and so if we have anxiety, then our body's still in our favor um, because it tells us that we're overwhelmed and, um, you know, all of that, all of that stuff. And so, um, yeah, I think I want, I want to make sure I let, I let your next question come in, but I, I feel like that, uh, that's a first, first answer to that. Um, my next question always comes off of your last answer. So I, I don't, I don't have a list of questions written. No, no, I know. I know. I'm just, yeah. Hmm? Uh, well, well, so, so, so you're speaking to how you are able to now, um, mm-hmm. take an anxiety that, for example, you experienced after the loss of your father that you hadn't necessarily properly mourned, properly coached with, properly strategized how it's going to affect the rest of your life and where you need to fill the holes that you didn't anticipate were going to exist. Then you have your first kid and you, did you say you had anxiety after your first kid or after your second and third? First and third. First and third. Don't ask so, me why, but that's what happens. No, yeah. you know, it's interesting. We, my wife and I had, had similar experience. Yeah. She, she had, um, the most postpartum mood disorder after the first and the third, mostly mm-hmm. after the third. And we yeah. actually, did a, we did a full podcast about that. I think that for her, the third thing was a lot about closure. Yeah. You know, this is, we're not doing this again. And I don't know if I'm ready to be done or not, but I don't want to climb into her head. That would be her story to tell. What I found interesting and that I want to go back to is you talked about where you felt it mm-hmm. and then how you move it from there to your hands to observe. And I think that for a lot of people listening to this, that that could sound very, what, what I like to call California woo woo and, <laughs> and you're in Germany, right? right. So, so, so it's certainly not California. No. Um, and I think that if people stop for a moment and actually give themselves the ability to think, Mm-hmm. And then they ask somebody who they know, do you feel the same thing? And they'll find that the answer is yes. But the way in which somebody feels it is often very different. Mm-hmm. You know, like for example, when, when I have what I would call micro anxiety, mm-hmm. which is conversational anxiety, I want to say the next thing mm-hmm. for me, that next thing is in my throat. Mm-hmm. Right, like it's, it's, I gotta get this out. I gotta get this out. And I got, if I don't say something, my throat feels like it's just growing and growing and growing. Yeah. For my wife, that feeling is in her belly. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. I found it interesting that you, you described yours as being below your heart and then trying to move it to your belly. I mean, to your hand for observation. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to feel things in different places? Um, that's very hard to, I, I don't think there's a, um, sort of like an obvious answer to this. Mm-hmm. It, it very depends on the person, very much depends on the person. So um, I see, um, interestingly, I see a lot of men um, in particular holding things in their throat and in their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and more often I see um, women holding their um, undigested emotions um, in their belly and the gut. Um, and yeah, that you, one of the reasons is that you, women are much more into, into you cut out for a moment. Did you say your belly and your gut? Mm-hmm, belly and gut. Exactly. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is that a lot of uh, women are a lot more intuition based. Um, but that we growing up, not necessarily have learned how to use it as a powerful source of wisdom. 
um, the same applies and I'll go into that, but like the same applies also, um, to, to men who like learned how to like not express their emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so that, I want, I want, if it's okay, I want to stop you there cause I have two yeah. questions and you just, you just nailed yeah. both. Um, I wonder how much of what you just described women having undigested wisdom and mm-hmm. men having unexpressed emotions comes mm-hmm. down to gender role. And, and expectation of what they're supposed to do in their gender. And I'm curious as to your, to your thoughts on that. And then I want to get into, cause I think this is a good transition to start talking about beliefs and how we break them and change them when, when appropriate right. or observe them. But, um, what are your thoughts around that? You know, the idea that men, men don't cry and show emotion cause it, it, it shows weakness and women aren't assertive because when they are, it's considered bitchy or annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which by the way, I'm not expressing that either of those are my views. It's, the internal view that people often have. Totally. Yeah. I wish my husband was here because we talk a lot about like uh, masculinity in our household um, and modern masculinity. Um, and he's someone who's always ready for a good cry, but um, it's, uh, it's definitely, there's definitely something to it, but because of the social tendencies or condition tendencies that we have, uh, grown up with. So a boy who's heard his entire life, don't be a girl. Um, you know, boys don't cry, toughen up, dude. Um, those kind of things. The chances that, um, this little boy learns how to like keep things, you know, right here and sort of like swallow it. Um, and, uh, by the way, they also, I mean, the swallowing also moves down, right? So I, over time, it usually all lands in, in the belly. But um, that's a psychosomatic sort of like symptom where something that you've heard for a very long time internalized and then made it a habit um, is just part of your who you are. Um, and so that's why we see so many men, you know, with the condition tendencies around like, um, feeling tightness in in their uh, voice box or in their throat. What you said there is really uh, interesting because I, I, what what I what I've experienced personally mm-hmm. in my past is um, throating it, and then later when I'm by myself, mm-hmm. bellying it. Yeah. You know, it's like okay, well, I'm when I'm, when I'm public, throat that. You just you just keep that in, mm-hmm. and then because if you if you speak about the way that you decided to feel it can potentially be weakness that somebody else would say, okay, I can, I can exploit that weakness over and over and over again if I choose to, which isn't necessarily true. It's just where my head has gone in the past. And yeah. then when I've observed it after the fact, and then when you're home later by yourself, you've had a chance to, to, to look at those thoughts and think about it. Then you start to get the belly anxiety of, I could have done something different in the moment. I should have done something in the different in the moment. I hope that next time this happens, I have the wherewithal to do something different and that's belly. Mm-hmm. So that is interesting. You brought that up. Yeah. It's, um, and I think in, in that exact moment that you're describing, it's, it's not about what would I do differently next time, but much more about sitting with that emotion that just like went into your belly and then say, what is it trying to tell me? And also, what is my body protecting me from, right? Like that question is oftentimes such a huge trigger for all of us because we don't think about it that way. We don't think about it in a way where it's like, oh, body's protecting us from something. Um, 
because we have made that decision to act this way really, really, really long time ago, most of the time in our childhood. Mm. Um, so if we look at it that way, then things that come up a lot are like, oh, I've been told by my father um, that uh, it's not the right place to voice my emotions, basically, ever. Um, and I should just go and get my homework done and be a good performer and, uh, you know, not make a big fuss about it. Uh -huh. And this is what we usually find um, when we go into those exact somatic sensations, right? It's sort of like, where does it come from? What's a really early memory of that feeling in your gut? And because only then when we really understand where it comes from, we can sort of like say, okay, like, is it something that I really still need? Or have I outgrown this a long time ago, but it's still somatically, so physically integrated in my body that needs release. And well, then we can let go of that. It's, it's so crazy to me. Yeah. How in, how interwoven our decisions and our beliefs are with the way that other people end up interpreting the world, mm -hmm. and and as a parent, it's it's most obvious. But I'll, I'll give an example that recently happened, and then um, I have another question I want to ask to stay on track. I have a my four year old; <clears throat> she's probably the most emotionally aware of our three kids. Mm -hmm. And the other day, she wasn't getting the attention that she was mm -hmm. looking for, and so she started acting out. And when our kids act out, my wife and I have a, have a, a practice of giving them what we believe they need instead of what, what we know that they want. Because if we give them exactly what they want in that moment, then acting out becomes the thing they do to get the thing that they want. Yeah. And so, you know, we told her, I understand that you're frustrated right now. I want you to spend some time and, you know, allow yourself to calm down and then come tell us what it is that you're frustrated about. And mm -hmm. she came out about 30 seconds later and said, I don't know. I, I don't know why I'm frustrated, but I'm just, and then she started acting up again. And I, I said, you know, let me give you a hug. And I hugged her and I said, I think you just need a little bit of love. Mm -hmm. She held me in a tight hug for like three minutes. And then when she loosened up, I loosened up and she was smiling and she was happy. And I was like, wow, like a three minute embrace. That's a long embrace. And so I believe that kids just grow up to become adults, <laughs> you know, and, and if adults have never dealt with the stuff like that in the past, well then exactly. we act up and we, we need that three minute hug from another adult sometimes. Mm -hmm. I sometimes become overwhelmed personally by my belief that it's my responsibility to work harder in every conversation than mm -hmm. the other person I'm talking to, to make sure that I am really trying to understand what it is that they seek to achieve in that conversation, what they're trying to say, how they want to be heard instead of making the assumption. So I'll ask questions. I will stay in the moment longer. I will pause before I respond. How do we know? How do we know if we're doing the right thing? Because what you're speaking to leads me to a path of perpetual questioning. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Um, 
in uh, in somatic leadership coaching, there's uh, one thing that always stuck with me, which is every human being looks for safety, belonging, and dignity. And when I started looking at my relationships in my life that way, um, I felt like I was moving into a more human experience with um, the people that I love or the people that I work with instead of moving into a relationship of power. Um, and that was incredibly helpful. Um, I was seeing them for what they were really saying. Um, you know, I was sort of like seeing a smaller version of themselves really craving that hug um, mm -hmm. and looking for the belonging and the safety um, in that conversation, if, you know, if they were, let's say, constantly asking, do you think so too? Is that right? You know, is there anything that else that I'm missing here? Um, you know, it's sort of like, where does that assurance come from? Like the, the ask for assurance come from. Um, and so I think all of, all of those big questions that you're asking all go back to, you know, how satisfied are we all with our sense of, belonging, dignity, safety. Well, and so when, when we mentor trainers, coaches, mm -hmm. one of the, in, in one of the meetings, ultimately, they all end up asking us like, okay, so, so is everything nothing then? Because one of the activities that we ask the coaches to go through is, you know, write down three exercises that you believe are absolutely essential that everybody be able to do in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. They write it down. And then we say now over the course of the next 10 minutes, Write down all of the reasons why that actually might not be true. Mm -hmm. You know, what, why, why is it possible? Why is a squat, for example, potentially absolutely irrelevant? <laughs> why is a deadlift absolutely irrelevant? Why are pull-ups absolutely, like write it down. Why are they absolutely irrelevant? Is there some, is there somebody in the world who doesn't need that? And if there's one, Are there many? And if there are many, have we perhaps conflated the value of that movement? Mm -hmm. And the purpose of that is not so that they can um, believe that nothing is important. It's to believe that nothing is finite, you know, that, that there's no absolutes, there's no dogma to anything. I don't know that business leaders and people are challenged in that way about their own beliefs about day-to-day Activities, you know, I'm 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 the owner of our company at Active Life. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean I make all the rules. Mm -hmm. But when people do things that frustrate me, I, I I need to address that this is frustrating me, and perhaps we need a rule about it. Let's come up with one together. So, how do people challenge their own beliefs? Get to a place of this is better for now, mm -hmm. without losing their way altogether. Mm -hmm. One of the one of the things that I recently wrote um, was the power to rechoose um, and rechoose in the light of um, understanding whether the opposite of what we believe is also true. Um, so, um, in 
many of the exercises that that I go through with my with my people, we we go into a space and and you know here are my values, and I say, how's the opposite true of that mm-hmm. of that value? Um, and they say, well, of course it's true. And so, okay, so why is that why is that value that you're holding then you know important to you? Um, and the exercise is not so much of in order to discard their truth, but it's to understand that um, truth is fluid and that truth has something very, um, there's a timestamp to it oftentimes. Um, I might believe in that. I might believe that democracy what a weird example, but I might believe that <laughs> democracy is the right thing for our world right now. Um, but as I, you know, move through life, make new experiences, reflect, do the deep work, find myself, all of the good stuff, I might find a better solution mm-hmm. that I personally believe is is true. And if I'm a world leader, then the chances are that I want, I insist on sort of like, um, implementing mm. well if we, if, if we bring can, I, w- I want to bring that to a level that that, that I think yeah. is 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 easily understood if we bring that into a gym setting for example um, okay. having a democracy in the gym setting would mean that each of the members are able to decide what each of the coaches are going to do because they Correct. they're the volume the coaches are then going to take that message up to ownership and say, this is what the members want us to tell you that they need to do. And so you need to do this. Mm-hmm. And in business that can become for lack of a better way to describe it, the inmates running the asylum. And so it's, it's easy yeah. for me to see where um, in governments and in larger organizations, why there is a time for democratic leadership, why mm-hmm. there is a time for authoritative leadership. Mm-hmm. why there's a time for affiliative leadership. Like why, why all of these different kinds of leadership have a place mm-hmm. during different times, during different mm-hmm. moments. Like for example, when COVID hit last year or yeah, early last year, no disrespect to our team. I wasn't interested in their opinions. We needed to move. We needed to move quickly and we needed mm-hmm. to move certainly, even if we were moving improperly. Mm-hmm. And that, that was my belief. And that's, that's what allowed me us to get through that moment. That's crisis management. Yes. That's a very different leadership move mm-hmm. than 80 to 90% of the moves that you do on a daily basis when things are either calm or you're trying to implement a new feature on your, in your program. Yes. Right. Um, so, but the, the reason why you can do that, what you did is because they have, tr- they, they, they trust you um, and you have built that trust in your team over time. That's called the trust bank account, right? So you took out a few trust coins um, by moving kind of like, yo, I don't really care what you're thinking. I'm just going to move anyway. Um, yeah, we definitely, we'll went, we went back and had to replenish that for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. But, um, but what what happens in or what should happen in 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 leadership is that you um that you perceive sort of like what everybody is um 
dancing tango with, right? Like what is everybody's sort of like problem or challenge or bottleneck? Um, you know, what is everybody's experience in the company? And you find the, the average of, um, of that and then continue to think about what, how that still fits into the organizational strategy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and how you can make that work. Um, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, but the communication, the way you communicate it coming out of that thought process on what the next step is, that is the most important part, right? You don't want to tell them that you own the truth and that's why you're moving, you know, in direction X. You want to say, hey, I've listened to, you know, some of you, I've talked to some of you, I like, I, I, I assessed the situation a lot and I've come to the conclusion that X, Y, Z, uh -huh. right? And I think it's the... What that does is, and we're coming back to the, the sort of like sense of belonging, safety, dignity, is that you support your people feeling safe, feeling like they belong into this organization because you consider them and their dignity is untouched, right? Um, and that is more important than anything else because ultimately the productivity of your entire organization depends on not just how people are getting their work done, but how they're feeling when they go home. So. What, uh, well, I think that's huge. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's the idea of, uh, it's easy. It's easy to treat everybody the way that you're treating yourself. It's hard to treat people the way that they need to be treated because the way that I want, like the way I want to be treated when I go home is, Oh, you have new information that can change the way something goes. Tell it to me now. Because, because I will, I will, um, I will act on it immediately. And what I've come to learn is that that is not necessarily how our staff or anybody else functions. Uh, and one of the strategies that I've been able to employ, I'm curious about your thoughts on it, is I will wake up at midnight with a thought and I can't just write that thought in a notebook and leave it for the morning. I, I won't fall back to sleep. I know I need to know that an action has been taken on it mm -hmm. at least for now. And so what I used to do is fire off an email to a staff member because I'm like, yeah. oh, all right, it's email. They don't have to check their email if they don't want to. And you know, they'll check it when it, when it's appropriate for them. And then I would get an email back like moments later mm. and I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. So what I started doing was writing an email and scheduling it for send for later in the day, the next day and writing yeah. myself a note to remind myself, you wrote an email to this person that is going to send it this time on the next day. And then when I wake up, I can read that email and say, is that the email that I wanted to send last night? Is it an email that I was sending in the moment? Is it an email? It gives me more freedom to make sure that they're getting the message I want. Well, what have you done in that moment? In which moment? Like what have you employed? In, in the, in the thought moment between? Mm. I like to ask myself a series of questions that, that I don't necessarily uh, do intentionally. The series of questions might be, what is the action that I hope will happen after this email is read? Did mm -hmm. I share in this email the action that I'm hoping will occur because I sent this email? Mm -hmm. What is the reason that I want that action to be taken? Did I share that reason in this email in a way that this person is going to be able to understand and interpret as my beliefs and my intention, not necessarily a reflection of their effort 
thus far. Those are really the things that I want to be considering because what I find is I'm very good with direct information. I want to be told, you need to do this better. You're not doing this well. Other people don't necessarily want that. Have you always been that way? Or was that a journey for you too? To realize that or that that I want that? Both. Uh, To realize that, yes. Uh, to want that, no. I've always wanted that. I was always the guy on a sports team where if the coach said, you know, if the coach was telling me all the things I was doing well and mm-hmm. I knew something else was coming, I'm like, I don't need the compliments. Mm-hmm. Just tell me what you need me to do. And when I hired a coach back in about 2016, uh, a li- I, I thought it was a business coach. It turned out to be a uh, much more of a life coach than a business coach. Um he was the one who taught me that not everybody wants to be talked to that way, that not everybody wants to think that way, and that um, the actions that I'm taking are actually pushing people away rather than drawing people in because of the way that I want to be treated and the way that they want to be treated. The simple example was, uh, and this is, this is where I got to the idea of challenge your own beliefs. He told me that I had a member who had quit on voicemail, and it really pissed me off because mm-hmm. I considered this member a friend I consider this member an ally to the gym. All, all of, we went through some dark times and this person was there for me during these dark times. And then they decided to leave the gym on voicemail after I had asked them to stop doing something very privately in the gym. And um, I took it personally. And he's like, you can't. So why not? He said, because if you had a conversation with them and asked them why, to them, that is a high-conflict situation. Mm-hmm. To you, until they have punched you in the face and drawn blood, it is not a high-conflict situation. Exactly. And they know that. So they yeah. know how high-conflict you're comfortable going and being very comfortable in the moment without intending to upset them, and they know how much conflict they can tolerate. And it's mm-hmm. nowhere near that. So they're not going to approach the conversation. Yeah. And he's like, and you can't take that personally because it's your lack of awareness that that's what you do to these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, shit. How often do we do that? And the answer really was all the time. Yeah. What ha- If I would f- frame it for you, if I would reflect back on you right now, what happened is that you integrated a version of yourself that you knew was always alive, which is the person who always wants an answer. You integrated that. You became aware of that. And you said, this is the person I want to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been that way, but now I get it. Right. Um, and what you've also done is that you integrated it with all the like understanding of how you want to be treated um, and found a solution for you know, the many people that you're serving. Well, and that, and that did help. And the, the other thing that happened for me in that relationship was I got challenged on the reason why I do things and no one had ever done that before. And so what, what happened there was I, I know you work with business people, you work on leadership development and I want to actually ask what somatic coaching is in a moment, but to remind me to come back to that, it's been the next question seven different times already. Um, but he asked me, why, why do you do what you do? And I told them, I want to provide for my family. Mm-hmm. I want to leave a legacy. Mm-hmm. And I want to change an industry. And mm-hmm. this is the way I can do those things. And he said, you know, that's, that's, that's a cute story that you tell yourself when you go to bed at night. It's, 
it's a shame it's not the truth. And I said, what? what? And he said, well, you're not even making $30,000 a year right now. Mm-hmm. You're not providing for your family. Are there other things that you could do that would more certainly help you provide for your family? I said, yeah. He's like, well, mm-hmm. then scratch that one off the list. You know, if, if, unfortunately, if your family passed away in an accident, would you stop doing what you're doing? I said, no. He's like, well, then stop pretending that they're the reason why you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he went, he went and basically knocked off all of the things I was describing. Mm-hmm. And, and that actually set me on probably the darkest personal development month of my life. Because mm-hmm. it was this, why do I do anything? I have mm-hmm. no idea. I, I'm just on autopilot. And I've been lying to myself because it was an easy lie to believe, but it's not true. And and that was that was the hardest month of my personal development. I don't I don't think that it um, wasn't true. It wasn't true anymore. Well, no. What I mean by it wasn't true was I didn't get into what I was like. I before something you don't know about me is before I got into owning gyms and and clinics, I got offered a job that would have made me high six figures, low seven figures in the first one to five years, mm-hmm. and. I turned it down for the opportunity to do what I was really passionate about. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't making decisions based on providing for my family. I was making decisions based on doing things I really enjoyed doing. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that's fine. That's reasonable. Um, but I never really faced that. In, I do believe that in order to um, integrate this word um, uh, integrate our journeys throughout our entire life. It is important to understand why providing for your family was one of the things that did come up. Um, I can, so I can tell you why now after having revisited it. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was, it was the, it's everything around ego. Yeah. Of, exactly. of being able to say, I can go out and hunt in the modern world. Mm-hmm. And take care of a family. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's a picture of masculinity. Yes. Well, it was it was my it was my exact image of masculinity. It was mm-hmm. on the shelf with a light on it, with a case mm-hmm. around it. Totally. Yes. Totally. And that also comes from somewhere, right? The way mm-hmm. yeah, my, my my father did it. Exactly. Um, you know, my father did it. My grandfather did it on one side of the family. My grandfather on the other side of the family didn't. And he struggled with the reality that he didn't. Yes. Yeah. So, and so there's a good reason why you thought that that was one of the reasons why you do what you do. Yes. Right. Until you broke away from that and said, actually, mm-hmm. um, you know, even though intergenerationally, that is our narrative. It's not my narrative. Really, and what's interesting for me is it's still important to me. Oh and, yeah, and of I'm, course. I'm, I'm able to observe it for what it is, which yeah. which is liberating. It's no longer, uh, it's 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 difficult to describe, but mm-hmm. it, it went from being a thing that because I didn't fully understand it, it felt like a weight, to being mm-hmm. a thing that now that I do fully understand it, it's it's a pursuit that, yeah. I, that I enjoy. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not who you are, but you're, you know, what you do. Um, There's so much beauty 
um, when we think about like, you know, why do we, we believe what we believe? How do we know what we know and what we don't know? Like in all of those big questions, there's so much beauty in just saying like all of the things that I have ever believed to be true that don't, that are not true to me anymore, or that I'm trying to outgrow or I'm outgrowing. Um, they all have held incredible importance to, for me, to me until now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm ready to move into the next chapter. And if we would like all move more into sort of like, um, sort of like a portfolio or flow picture um, image of life, right? If I would consider my life more as a flow or portfolio, then I would not be so rigid and so hard on myself when I make mistakes because it's just all part of the of the same me, of the same journey, of the same sort of like, you know, picture that I'm trying to draw while I'm while I'm driving this ship, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm drawing while I'm like, you know, steering. And, and that is so much more important uh, than to know at every po- moment in time what I think is true or not, right? The, the, a meaningful human experience is not created by saying like, I believe in, you know, um, what, I, what I do is providing for my family is the most important thing in my entire life because you're basically closing yourself off to the idea that there's something else mm-hmm. um, available to you out there that you have no idea about it yet, but it might come and it will give you an even richer experience and, you know, maybe a more fulfilling moment while the same piece of providing for your family still holds true. What I, um, what I, what I find so, so interesting about all of that is, is bringing the kids back into it. You know, my, yeah. my brother-in-law is a police officer. Great guy. I really like him. He's great to my sister. Um, when my daughter, who's six, was asking about, you know, what police officers do to me, she was saying like, oh, so they get the bad guys. And mm-hmm. I explained to her, uh, and I was really happy that I caught myself in the moment having this conversation. I said, there really is no such thing as a bad guy. Mm-hmm. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, everybody is doing what they believe to be the right thing exactly in every single moment. Yeah. And so the bad guy, the person that, that you're thinking of as the bad guy might have needed food for his family. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can, exactly. you know, can just come home to dinner and it, we have rules that we follow and the policemen protect those rules. It doesn't make the person who broke the rule a bad person. Just like if you broke a rule in school, you're not a bad person. Mm-hmm. And, I was really inspired by the conversation that came from that from my six-year-old daughter about like, Oh, well then, but why, why can't people get food? You know, like it was, it was, it was cool to be able to go down that rabbit hole with her. Uh, Break it down. Yeah. yeah, Well, and 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 my hope is that I'm constantly breaking these, these structural beliefs that kids grow up with that I grew Mm -hmm. up with of of no fault of my own parents. It was just, we weren't thinking about these kinds of things in my household. You know, my parents had certain thoughts like the, the curse words in our house sounded more like can't, you know, we, I heard plenty of fuck shit, all that. I heard it. I never heard the word can't that wasn't allowed. Mm -hmm. I, I am part of that on my kids. I love that. Um, but so I want to get to, to the question. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. You, you were going to say something. No, it's okay. 
I think I'm going to come back to it. Okay. What is a transformational and somatic coach? I've been enjoying the conversation with you so much. I've forgotten to ask you what it is. <laughs> yeah. So, um, when I, um, got into coaching, which happened, uh, because I had a leadership coach myself for a very long time and, um, realized that a lot of the things that I did in my previous company, um, future proofing startups, uh, in short was coaching founders. Uh, I just never called it that way. Um, and, um, my leadership coach then said to me at the end of our engagement, she said, Francie, you really need to become a leadership coach. I think you would be really great at it. Um, and I was very young at the time. Um, and so I had a lot of like imposter syndromes, like I can't do it now. This is crazy. You know, what a big leap. Da -da -da. Um, when my father passed away and I went through those sort of like um, moments of anxiety in my life, I did a lot of very deep healing, very deep self-work. Um, I never... I promised to myself that I would never take, that I would try to avoid any medication. Um, also just like a personal, uh, personal history on that. But, um, and so I went from being a, like, you know, CrossFit four days, four days a week, um, and then a run. And then, you know, all of the things that sort of like, uh, spiral your nervous system to the max, um, to like someone who meditated, someone who, um, centered, um, someone who took long deep bath, um, like all of those things in order to sort of like regulate myself, regulate my breath. Um, and through that journey, I realized, uh, so many of my childhood traumas and so many of my conditioned tendencies, conditioned tendencies are basically another big word for really bad habits or perceptions that I have of the world that, you know, are just perceptions and nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, and why do we have perceptions? Well, we have perceptions because this is how we got to know the world and how it works based on the memories and experience that we made or were exposed to as a kid. And so that's how I got to somatic coaching um, through like a lot of research and, um, a husband who's like a martial artist and this is where it comes from. What and is so somatic, coaching? somatic coaching? Um, is the ability to sort of like, uh, through conversation, go into your body through taking a few deep breaths, nothing, nothing groundbreaking. And let's say I, uh, I'll take my anxiety as an example. Let's say I, have this flattering and this, this, this feeling of like, like a butterfly, very nervous butterfly mm -hmm. right below my heart. And my somatic coach tells me, okay, so where does it come from? Um, and I say, I don't know. Um, and he says, okay, so what's an early memory of that, that feeling. And I go really deep inside of myself and ask like, just, you know, don't try to think so much, but really try to feel like, where does that feeling come from? Where have I seen it before? And we're basically using this sort of like the, some, the, the physical responses that my body gives me in moments of distress, in moments of uh, anxiety, in moments of un indecisiveness, 
in moments of um, inability to make big decisions with in comfort and with a lot of like self-esteem um, like all the typical leadership challenges that everybody's going through. Right. And so we're using our body to sort of like go deeper into that and say like, where does it come from? Why, why is that keeping you stuck? Why is that not um, a strength of yours, but instead you consider it a weakness and our body is the, the container of our deepest memories. Um, we just store a lot of it away as part of moving on in life. And so I'll try to dig it up. And then we go into very sort of like quote unquote traditional leadership development work, but based on some very deep insights that usually free people up and gives them a lot more clarity around like what they need to communicate and, you know, who they are. Um, it opens them up to, you know, understanding other people a lot better because they can see how their emotions have held them back. And so other people probably have the same, you know, condition like we all do. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so it's, it's really just a, a way to work with the body, um, to unleash yourself. And so how, how is it different than traditional therapy, if you will? Traditional therapy is conversational. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it ha- still happens a lot in the head. Um, and so I can usually, res- the things that I tell you that happen in my head are usually things that I have thought about already. So there's always a personal bias in there somehow. Um, and I usually have answers to the uncomfortable questions in order to protect myself from okay. going deeper into the uncomfortable part. Um, and so the body doesn't hold back, um, if you allow it to. And that's, that's where we find release. It's so, so, if, so you're okay. basically asking about, um, like you're asking about those physical feelings. Mm-hmm. Sensation. Right. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you're able to, to navigate the stories that lead to those feelings. Yeah. And then observe them and decide if that's the feeling that we want to get when we have that story. Is that, is that basically what it is? Yeah. We, we unpack our own, we unpack our own truth. So, um, so how, how often do you find yourself talking to people who don't know what to say? You know, I'm imagining, I went through a session one time, I believe it was called, um, I think it was called a rim meditation. I don't mm-hmm. remember exactly what it was called, but um, it was basically, I, I laid there with my eyes closed and the practitioner was asking me, you know, asking me questions that got my energy stirred up and then started asking me what, what color is the energy? What shape mm-hmm. is the energy? Where's the location mm-hmm. of the energy? This, so this is, this is the same kind of thing, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Very similar. Mm-hmm. Very similar. Um, the, the beauty of it is, is that you can ex- sort of like accept where you are, no matter what you feel. Mm-hmm. If you, the, the fact that someone could say, actually, I don't feel anything mm-hmm. is a huge feeling. Um, is a what be- feeling? It's a huge feeling. Okay. Because um, a lot of what a trauma response, um, especially for veterans, for instance, um, is that they stop feeling anything they become numb. 
to physical sensations as an, as an example. Um, and so if someone has gone through all the different sort of like personal development, leadership development uh, stages that they could go through and still tell me, you know, I can't, I, I just can't hone in on that impact that I'm trying to create with my people. My organization is not getting where it's supposed to, you know, where it's supposed to be. And I say, okay, how does it make you feel nervous, angry, whatever? So it's okay. Where do you feel that anger? Oh, I don't feel that anger. Oh, okay. So why do you think you're not feeling that anger? What, what, what is, what is it protecting you from? What is your body protecting you from by, by not feeling it? Well, so can, so, can we go back a step there? Please. So when I'm, I'm answering those questions in my head. Yes. And, and for me, it becomes, if you're giving me the choices that you gave me and I'm having to choose one, it's, mm. it's belly and it's anger and it's mm. anger because of the impact that I believe we could be having and we're not. Mm-hmm. And, and it's anger largely with myself mm-hmm. for failing to communicate the direction, failing to understand the direction and then mm-hmm. communicate it and failure to provide the appropriate resources to be able to move at the speed that I want us to be able to move. And I put mm-hmm. that on me. Now, mm-hmm. what is the value of being able to feel that and being able to express that as compared to, um, I guess not, (laughs) you know, because, because I can, I can, I can tell you all those things. It doesn't change the fact that it still makes me angry and we're still not moving as fast as I would like to move. But, (laughs) but the person who can tell you how it makes them feel is in the same position as me is what it feels like. If you understand the root of your anger, Mm -hmm. um, you can start to choose whether you want to continue to feel that anger um, or whether you want to transform it into something else. How, so, would, how would you transform it into something else? So when you feel anger in your belly and mm-hmm. you, you know, you just listed all of those things that, you know, feel like, you know, this is why we're not making the impact that we're, that we should be making. Um, and you put it all on you. What, you know, where does that, uh, where does that come from? Where does that sort of like that notion of like, that is all on me. Yeah. It, com- it comes from, I can tell you, it comes from mm-hmm. me understanding that um, I need to allow people to, to perform in the environment that, that is available. Mm-hmm. And so my responsibility is to create the environment. And so if, if they're, performing in a way that is 99% of what they want. Mm-hmm. That 1% I deduct is I either have the wrong people, which I don't believe I do, mm-hmm. or I've created the wrong environment, mm-hmm. which I, which I believe is my responsibility. And that that's where it all comes from. So what, what fear, what deep rooted fear that you've experienced before in your life um, is that? I don't think it's a deep rooted fear that I've experienced in my life. I think that it's a a big Mm -hmm. part of it is, um, I'll go back. Actually. I think a part of it is that I feel like the people who we most serve as a company Mm -hmm. are currently being bullied by the industries Mm -hmm. that we, that we aim to 
to reimagine. Mm-hmm. And every moment that we spend not stepping in between the bully and the victim mm-hmm. is a moment that that victim continues to be victimized, whether mm-hmm. they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. That pisses me off. Can I, yes. can I share what comes up for me yeah. when I, um, when I hear you talk, I hear, I, I sense a fear of inadequacy. Okay. Like, am I in, not, not that you're saying that to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Am I inadequate enough to, um, to, to bring this company uh, to the point where, you know, we're winning the fight, um, but we're protecting the victim. I don't know if it's my own fear of inadequacy, um, Mm -hmm. because what I can tell you is, uh, I'll add to that answer. What I can tell you is that I, I have failed more things in more ways than I believe most people have tried. Mm-hmm. And I don't fear that failure again. And I don't fear what that failure would mean about me mm-hmm. personally if it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. What I do fear is a solutionless industry, a solutionless society. That you know, for me, it's I'm, I'm I'm I think I talked about this on a podcast recently. I'm I'm going on vacation to a place that I really don't like with mm-hmm. my wife, and we're going there because she loves that place. Mm-hmm. And I observed the reason I, I sat with it and I said, why, why do I hate this place so much? Mm-hmm. And the reason why I hate the place so much is because it caters to an audience of people who are very unhealthy and they're very unhealthy physically and they're very unhealthy um, emotionally. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of excess drinking. There's a lot of excess eating. There's a lot of um, just, just things that I don't value in my life. Mm-hmm. So maybe unhealthy is the wrong word. I just don't share values with what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And I see the businesses that are there predatorily attracting mm-hmm. the people who it serves to come. Mm-hmm. And it didn't bother me that, that, that all of that happens. What bothered me was that there was nobody who was doing anything about it. There was nobody who was, who was showing the people who were there spending their money, spending their dreams, spending their future on, on things that I don't, things that I'm actually opposed to if that makes sense. Um, and when I realized, when I realized that I, I I actually shifted the direction of our company ever so slightly because I realized that we exist to, to be the solution to those problems. And we're not. Mm -hmm. So you're saying you're, you're not the solution to that. We weren't moving in a direction to be the solution to that. But now you are. Yes. So you're, you, you continue to adjust to this. I think maybe this is, this is your, this is your thing, right? Like the moment when you sense inadequacy, quote unquote, right. Uh, whether in your business or with yourself, you immediately adjust. You yes, find a, that's definitely you, true. You find a solution becoming aware of that. That is one of your superpowers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and is, let me put it, phrase it differently, more, more, uh, more eagerly will be such a strong force in moments when you need to remind yourself that you are. 
right? There will always be, there will always be moments where, you know, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? And then you think, well, wait a minute. I know because I found out that I am someone who's really good at like, you know, shifting towards making small steps and fighting the inadequacy, right? Um, and, and that will ultimately kick new creative processes into gear. This is how our brain works, right? Our brain works with sort of like those small, small bits of like inspiring information that we find about ourselves. And, and so any, anything that you can find out about yourself that sits deep down, whether you want to release it or whether you learn more about like your superpowers is a, a conscious win for your business. I'm internalizing that. Okay. I'm trying to integrate what you just said. <laughs> Let me know if I can add some flavor. Well, you, you, you know what, what I, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm drawn to and what you just said, what, what I keep going back to is what I would consider to be my superpower is, is the rate of implementation. Right. So mm -hmm. I decide that's not good enough. I kill it. Like mm -hmm. it's dead. It, it doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And I have no emotional tie to it just because it was sentimental to me when we were in it. The problem that that leads me to is most people don't move in the same speed and discard emotional things. And so what happens, I'll, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. We have a program that we produced back in 2015 that we call our bulletproof programs. Mm -hmm. And they're meant to help people with their joint health. Mm -hmm. There might not be anything I hate more in our company than the name bulletproof for our programs. I don't like that. We call people athletes either. And we're working on improving both of them. But for me, it's okay. Those are dead. Let's come up with new things. And mm -hmm. there are reasonable answers to why that can't happen. Mm -hmm. Reasonable answers. Like, well, we have SEO built around that. We've already built these marketing funnels around that. There's all of these things that we spent months putting in place to make those things viable. And you're saying, if we change the name, everything is good. But if we change the name, all those things also have to change mm -hmm. to me. I'm like, yeah, okay. Change them. But it's irresponsible of me to make that decision on behalf of our entire company. When our company was me and uh, three or four other people, we had those Bulletproof programs running and they were generating right around $60,000 a month, six zero, with about 90% margin. Mm -hmm. When I looked into them and saw that most of the people who were buying them weren't using them, mm -hmm. they were buying them, but they weren't using them. I canceled them. I cut $60,000 of business out of our company like that because I didn't like the way it made me feel that we had, ah, a, here we go. Right? Here we go. Yeah. Cause we had, cause, cause I, we had a product that people were buying and not using. And I felt like we were the, the planet fitness of template programs. Mm -hmm. and I hated that. And I didn't, and I like to, um, be somebody who does what I say I believe is important to do. Yeah. But do you, do you still, are you still that person when you do it 20 minutes, 60 minutes a day later and have time to sort of like think about the 
communication and the way to make it relatable to others? I am. Ah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I've gotten much, much, much better at it. <laughs> much better at it. Uh, the, the, but that is... And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I'm getting back to that. And I, and I say this with so much love and respect, too. Oh, I take it. Uh, but that, that is fear of, like, you know, it's like if we can sit with that something that is not as perfect as you'd like it to be, right? Like you have, you, you want the absolute best for yourself, for your company, for your family. And that is like so admirable. Um, but sometimes our best strength get in the, also in the way of our deepest, of the things not that we want, but that we need, which might be deeper human connection, mm-hmm. right? Deeper relatability, um, and all of the, which is safety, connection, dignity, like all of the things that we discussed before, right? So in the rush of growing a business, you know, up and right, like how do we make sure that we also go deep with the people that are working there so that they understand why we are going always up and right? Mm-hmm. And and I think, I think that that's a fair way to describe it. I, I am... I do fear inadequacy of our message aligning with our action. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're adjusting. And I say this to a lot of um, founders in particular that I work with is like realizing that you are the a top one to 3% of human sort of like um, thoughtfulness or mindfulness already, right? Because you, you're already like five to 10 steps ahead, right? You're always adjusting the top five, the top 5% of your business, which you should be, right? This is your job. But that doesn't mean that the things that are currently existing are not like supporting and impacting a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? So taking another day or two or, you know, a week, even if it's, if it's reasonable, to think like, what is it that we can do to make sure that this is, you know, communicated yeah. done in the blah, 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 appropriately. Um, just adds sort of like, let's, let's the sense of rush in your body sort of like move out and move into a stage of sort of like conscious and practical um, decision-making. Yeah. In hindsight, I wouldn't have cut a $60,000 piece of revenue off our company, I would have asked, why aren't people accessing it? Mm-hmm. Can we spend some of that money mm-hmm. to, help, to help people yeah. better access it? Uh, I would have thought the same. Yeah. yeah well, like, well, that was a really quick decision he made there. Yeah, lesson learned. Lesson <laughs> learned. We're bringing them back. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think that that's something that uh, is probably relatable for other business owners out there that they, and, yeah. and, I'm happy to be the one who makes the mistake that they can learn from. And talk totally. About yeah. Like, and this is, this is why it's, I always, I always, uh, I always love to bring this quote back, um, which is like, I teach so I can learn. Right. Mm-hmm. And I learn so I can teach. Yeah. We're all one, right. By you making the mistake and you and I exchanging it, you know, even if just like two people take it and run with it and uh, impact another you know, in some another 500 people with it. Well, here we go. Right. 500 yeah. people. Yeah. So, um, it's good that we're all sharing our mistakes publicly. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, that was fun going down that memory lane. 
Mm-hmm. Franzi, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you think would help people who are going to listen to this to observe their beliefs from a different lens and perhaps start to question some of them and change some of them? I'm asking mm-hmm. you this because um, perhaps one of the most profound things that was ever taught to me was stop to think about what you're thinking about mm-hmm. before you decide what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And that you know that led me to releasing a lot of anger i had with a lot of people it led me yeah. to uh releasing a lot of of blame i would cast on myself for not achieving some of the things that i thought i should have achieved at the time mm-hmm. because i'm very achievement oriented i would have not thought so really <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> i know uh but so mm-hmm. i'm curious if there's anything that i didn't give you the opportunity to speak about that you think would help people challenge their own beliefs thank you um, I think as a starting point is to start observing your own thoughts and start to observe your own truth. Observe them how though? And I ask you this in, in, in I'll give, I'll give an analogy or a metaphor. Um, if we tell somebody to observe the ocean mm-hmm. from where, what am I mm-hmm. looking for? Because if we, t- and, I, and I understand that there's the, you know, you can tell someone to look at, or you can tell them where to look and, mm-hmm. and let them see what they want. Is that just what, is that what you're saying? Stop, stop being so direct about it. No. Um, so if I look at an ocean, um, I see an ocean for about probably 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mind starts shifting. I see the kids that are playing on the beach. And then I think about how I used to play on the beach with my mother. Um, And when I think about my mother, I think about how much we've been through. And when I think about how much we've been through, I think about how much I love her. And when I think about how much I love her, I think about how grateful I am that I get to experience that that same story with my own children. Um, and then I think about, I should really be at the beach more often. Mm-hmm. And so that simple exercise of just staring at something and letting your thoughts flow and then writing them down, um, could tell you so much about where you're at and without judging it, just observing it. And, um, there's an exercise that, um, that I love doing, which is, um, and I, and I send it to, to a lot of my clients. It's like, um, it's like a check-in mechanism. It's sort of like, what, where are you feeling things this week? Just where anything, right? Oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a tingly in my right shoulder. Um, what are you thinking about this week? Well, I'm thinking about, I don't know how, uh, how I've been not acting enough on the big to-do list that I, uh, that I have in front of me. Um, and then the next question is, what's your next thought? Wow, I've been really judging myself for this and, you know, have been, uh, in, instead of just doing things, I have been procrastinating and that is my tendency to self-sabotage myself. So sometimes we just have to start super simple in order to sort of like let the bigger interpretation or the bigger meaning behind it for ourselves come through um, because that is the only way for us to move into a state of like bringing the unconscious 
alive, like bring, turning the unconscious into something conscious. Otherwise, we're just projecting, right? Like the moment, the moment I just sort of like um, look at the beach and have all the answers to why I love the beach. Oh, I love beach because it's, you know, I love the sand and the weather and the climate and blah, blah, blah. like, yeah, I know all of this already, but if I just let, let go, right. Let the control of my mind go and just sort of like start to wonder um, and sort of like almost like use my breath to sort of like when I inhale, let it all like sort of like mix up and then then like swoosh it all down into my, into my body and thus feel more things in my body, then that's the first good step. Just learn with yourself, discover yourself, be curious about yourself, be curious about what you might be wrong about. Um, ask yourself whether the opposite of what you're thinking is also true. Um, and, and have fun with it. Like, don't take yourself too seriously on all of this. Um, the human experience is such a wild ride, right? And all we can do is really just make the most out of it and just have a lot of fun growing. Like, it's all we're here for. If we just do it, coming back to our children, if we just do it so that our children have a different experience around growth that it's not heavy and not like, you know, it doesn't need to be like a heavy topic or need, we're not talking about shedding trauma all the time or whatever it is, but just because it's cool to grow and have new insights and make people happy and leave a legacy. Right. Mm-hmm. Why not? That sounds good. I so that. not making it, not, don't make it heavy. Have fun. Frenzy, where can people find you? Um, where can people find me? They can find me on the deepfitleader.com. Um, the deepfitleader.com. Yeah. The deepfitleader.com. I'm working on that, on that, uh, website right now. So, you know, um, that's, that's the first place to go. I also write on, uh, Substack, which is, um, the deepfitleader.substack.com. Um, and I'm on all the typical social media platforms. Um, probably if you type in Francisca Gonder, I'll definitely pop up. All right. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for giving us the space to explore so many unknown unknowns. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Active Life Podcast. If you did, please be sure to head to wherever you listened to it and give us a quality review as well as five stars if you can spare them. If you want more from us, feel free to follow all of our social media accounts at Active Life Professional, Active Life Rx, and Dr. Sean Pastuch on Instagram. Remember, at Active Life, we believe that the healthcare clinic of the future is the gym, and the healthcare provider of the future is the coach. We also believe that that future is you.